Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Chem Combos Podcast. We're your hosts, Henry. And I'm Medina. Today we have a pleasure to introduce Professor Lee Cronin from the University of Glasgow. So Lee, could you kind of give us an elevator pitch of your research for those that may not be kind of familiar with it? Yeah, I suppose I'll tell you about my team because my team and my research kind of go together. So my team is a mixture of chemists, mathematicians, roboticists, physicists, and computer scientists. And I've kind of assembled this team, or they've assembled themselves, they'll probably claim they've assembled themselves, behind a number of ideas. I suppose the big idea is to ask what life is and to create life in the lab. And then in the process of creating life, we realized that we didn't have enough. My PhD students just weren't able to work long enough hours, right? So I had to build a robot. That's a joke. We realized that the job of making life was too hard to just have one person do. We need to digitize chemistry to do it. We made the robotics and then that's when we led to digital chemistry. And then when we were digitizing chemistry, I was like, oh, okay, we can use robots to do chemistry and they're driven by computers. But could we use chemistry to do computing? And that's the third theme of the group. And the final theme is to ask, what is information? And it's kind of weird for a chemist to ask, what is information? It's kind of deeply philosophical. So that's my group in a nutshell. I'm an experimentalist. I love making stuff. I'm an organometallic chemist by my undergraduate project. But I like asking really awkward questions to smart people. That's great to know. Thank you for giving us a short overview of your research ideas. So it's a seasonal transition time. So we're transitioning from winter to spring. So you became a research professor in 2013. We were wondering whether you can talk more about your transition and your experience with that. It was a bit of an odd one. The research chair is a bit of a weird, well, it's not weird. It's a very historical relationship with the way that we call professorships in the UK. So only a few universities used to have research chairs, and that would be I'm Oxford, Cambridge, Glasgow, and then I think maybe Aberdeen, I should know, right? And what would happen is the monarch of the time would create some chairs, they would be signed off by the king or queen. So to become the religious chair, the monarch has to sign a document. And so when I came to Glasgow, the, you know, there's a name chair, it's the top chair in the department, and I started in the department as a lecturer. I pay my postdocs considerably more than what I was paid when I started as a lecturer in Glasgow. And then I went up through the ranks of, I went from lecturer to reader. And then I kind of set myself a goal of becoming professor by a certain age, because that was seemed to be the equivalent of tenure. We don't have tenure in the UK and lecturer seemed to be an odd thing to communicate. So I became a personal chair, what you call. And then there was a chair called the gardener chair, which is one of the name chairs. And I became that. That became vacant and I took that over. And then we were looking for hiring regis chairs and they said, so I was trying to find someone in the right calibre to be a regis chair. And then I said to the university, I can't find anyone. They said, well, you're all right. And I didn't really think. And I said, okay, how does one get put up for being the regis chair? And then the university basically kind of reflected on my candidacy. And then they approved it. And then the prime minister approved it. And then the Queen wrote me a little letter and said, you know, it's approved, you know. I never met the Queen, but I have this signed document. So for me, it was kind of funny. I mean, I'm not against the monarch or for the monarch. I'm interested in the history. And the Regis chair was made by, let me get this right, King James. Oh, I need to think. No, it's George III. George III. He was the one who lost the US. So the chair goes back 200 years. And so it's just a lineage. And so... I was in two minds because I don't really do hierarchy. 
And by becoming the Regis Chair, I'm adopting the hierarchy. But I'm the most unconventional Regis Chair there is, right? I'm sure that there's no Regis Chairs getting into the type of trouble on Twitter that I'm getting in trouble for. Not turning to be bad, but what I mean is I'm fairly young, still below 50, and I'm Regis Chair of Chemistry. And I was the only Regis Chair of Chemistry in the world, in the UK. And since my appointment to Regis Chair, two other chairs have been made, one in Cardiff and one in Liverpool. So that's it. It was quite good. It was good for my group. It was kind of interesting to get the letter, you know, signed by the First Minister of Scotland and the Queen. But really nothing changed. <laughs> so if nothing changed, what do you think is the purpose of having all this hierarchy and, and being so different from the US system? Well, that's a really interesting question. Well, I think there's nothing wrong with understanding the history of what people have done before you. So previous Regis chairs in Glasgow have won Nobel Prizes, right? They've been elected for the society what they've done. So I'd like to think that the Regis chair of the university was maybe hoping that I will do something to be worthy of the title, if you know, like so the title carries on some history. And so part of my job is to create some history rather than use hierarchy. And I think that's all important for the students, isn't it? Now it's like, why are you doing the science you're doing? What is the question you're trying to answer? What are people in future generations going to think that you did? So I think if I can use being a Regis chair to do that, that would be great. And the other thing is when I became the Regis chair, I organized a party, a big lecture, I also got an astronaut to come and talk at my inauguration. So I, you know, one of the things I've never done is I've never had an inaugural lecture, even as a personal chair or gardener chair. But it was a big fail, right? Because I got this big astronaut to come. And then when he gave his talk just before my, so there's me sitting in the space shuttle. There's me going into space. There's me taking a spacewalk. There's me fixing the Hubble. And there's me like fixing the Hubble and then three Nobel Prizes have been given for the data for the Hubble. And by the way, here's the introduction of Lee giving his lecture. Interesting transition. <laughs> so that was kind of funny. So no, it's about history and it's about setting the vision for people. That's what I'd like to use it for. It is pretty cool. I think like you talked about, you know, setting that legacy. It's not just about, you know, what you're doing for the students, like what example are you setting for them? And, you know, in the future, for 10 years time, people look back and see what you did and be impressed that's kind of yeah I mean not even legacy you know when people say what are you proud of I'm like nothing I don't know proud of anything I've done yet I'm going to be proud but I think that's not fair in my group of course I'm not proud but not the legacy but more the direction right and the more I interact with other sciences and think about what I'm doing is and also it goes to some of the theories I'm developing assembly theory I understand the information I carry in my head in my group and what we're doing uniquely carries some path for humanity going forward. If in our team, you know, say let's take some work that's been done in the computing team or the reaction web team where we're 3D printing and making reactors, if that technology makes its way outside of my lab and can help other people get access to molecules and drugs and reproducibility, then I make a positive impact in the future. Yeah, I can look back. Legacies are for old people to look back and say, look at me, I'm so proud of myself. But what's more important is having that future and allowing other people to take part in making that happen and realizing they can do that as well. And from that point of view, Henry, I fully understand what you mean. It gives people something to aim at, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a really great power that we have as scientists to impact the future by taking steps right now. It's really great.
we talked about initially at the beginning about the work of the team and what the aims are. Can you talk about your own personal journey with like automation and kind of has it been a passion for you for many years? Can you maybe talk back in time, perhaps? Yeah, I can answer that. I mean, I'm a geek, right? I don't really care about automation per se, although I just bought this. Amazing. This is the Oculus Rift. Oh, okay. Virtual reality types. Best virtual reality device ever used, ever. So I'm a bit of a geek. I like technology because I want to understand how the world works. And I guess this is one of the reasons why I did that clubhouse on computation. And so I built my first computer when I was, I think, I don't know whether it was when I was seven or eight, right? I had to go at building a computer and I wrecked all the stuff in the house, all the electronic things. This was back, you know, in the early 80s, right? <laughs> and my parents weren't rich by any means. So, you know, they had a broken washing machine, broken TV, broken telephone. And I think at that time, I don't think you even owned your telephone. I think British Telecom owned the telephone. So they had to explain to British Telecom why the relays were all hanging out of the phone, right? And all of that. So I tried to build a state machine, basically a basic computer, which would just store some. I wanted to do a calculation, basically. Completely broken it. And then I, my father bought me ZX81. So I played around with that for a few years. And I was always adopting technology first and trying to work out how it works and code and play around. So that automation has kind of always been something that I've been intrigued by. It's not really automation. It's about control. It's about how can I write something abstractly and then collapse that information down such that the machine will understand what I want it to do. It's not like, you know, I'm not really a passive automator and i think that lots of people out there in robotics right now are taking chemistry or materials adding a robot adding ai and saying they've done something special they haven't at all it's just passive automation it's okay but it won't really solve any problems it will look like it can and it's a bit like it happens quite a lot in science now i'm realizing that people vent, you know making water splitting devices but that don't actually split water on any realistic timescale. So my passion for automation really comes not from passion of automation, but understanding how things work and how to control them. And it goes back to my personality that unfortunately I'm a really slow learner. And that's because if I'm going to understand something, I have to take it apart and really understand. And I remember when I was a kid taking parts, like I don't understand how the TV works, take the TV apart. So. I don't understand what this is, an electron magnet. Don't understand what that is, it's an electron gun. I don't understand what that is, it's a phosphor. And then I suddenly went, ah, oh, I can now control electrons, an electron gun onto a phosphor, scanning at a certain rate. And so I could then have a picture in my head where I understood the universe because I can only understand stuff if I have built it. And so my big problem with organic chemistry is I didn't understand it because I couldn't encode it. So my quest right now is to understand organic chemistry by encoding it. And the organic chemists think it's the other way around. They think I think that I'm superior to them, but no, no, they're superior to me. And I'm trying to work out how the hell they do it. And the only way I can work out how the hell they do it is by programming a robot to do it and looking at, oh, they're adding that then and this then and that solvent and that anti-solvent. And this is when they do the separation. So that's how we got there. I automate because I need to understand. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. I think it comes back to perhaps how maybe students are educated from a young age. It's that thing of first principles. So it's really what you're touching on is you know, learning by first principles. Perhaps that's where I think maybe chemical education is, well, not perhaps failing, but it could be kind of changed to kind of teach students about first principles and build up from the bottom up. To answer that, so I'm a first principles thinker, which really colours a lot of the way I do my science. And it annoys a lot of people because what people do is they build up the castles in the air on what they do. And I just walk, <laughs> just, why are you doing that? That doesn't make any sense. Let's take it apart. Oh, let's do it this way. 
And I think doing that with students and getting students comfortable. I mean, this is one of the things I've done very well, I think, is by kind of attacking myself, if you like, or saying, oh, why have I done that? That's stupid. We need to do it this way. Take it all down. It's difficult because people internalize it. Because if you do it the wrong way, you think you're criticizing them. Like, no, no, no. You're great. What you did here isn't so great. But don't worry about that. We can make it better. And so what it's a question of doing is using first principles thinking, you can ask how to do things differently. It is ironic that the computer or the ChemPU system will or can now do any organic reaction that is known by humanity, right? And will forevermore. And organic chemists wasn't able to construct it. I did. And the reason why it works is I made it into a state machine and made it universal. And I think that needed me to come in from first principles and say, well, hang on, why is organic synthesis hard? And hang on, why is that not reproducible? That's amazing what we're discussing. But I guess one of the challenges that you're probably dealing with is there are a lot of misconceptions about the automation and chemistry. A lot of people, because they're not in that field, they don't really know how it works and how it can help. So have there been any misconceptions that you were dealing with? And how do you usually deliver your message to people who don't necessarily have the same background? It's a really interesting question. It's a big problem because I'm not very good at explaining it even now, right? I mean, I'm fairly, I can make a vague vision, but then can't make it concrete. So the way I used to do it is I used to go and give lectures and say to the organic chemists, you're all going to be out of a job. I think it's hilarious. I chuckled myself and say, yeah, I made this robot, you know, I've called it whatever, you know, the Nicolau bot or something. But that wasn't really helpful because the chemists, there's a serious problem here in that it's not about replacing the chemists. It's about making them safer. It's about respecting their skill level. You know, you think about it, if you were a, training for six years right and then after that you go on you do a postdoc and then for the next few years you train other people for manual labor and that manual labor is very repetitive it's not terribly enlightening maybe only one to five percent of the time are you doing actually something new or interesting if we can replace all that and make it safer and automatic then I think everyone wins because you're not going to decrease the number of chemists right you're going to increase the safety and you're going to increase their creativity and there's an infinite number of molecules to make and we're not making them fast enough. So what I'm saying now is to say, well, hang on, look, what is the bit that you don't like? Well, the bits you don't like is probably reproducing the literature because it never works. I mean, it's not that it doesn't, it never works. It's very, very rare that someone can go and get a preparation out of literature unless they're super experienced, they know the area, they make these molecules all the time that it works for us time. So for a student who's training, that's really demoralizing. So like, is it me? Is it the reagents? Is it the preparation? So if we could remove all of that, so people just know when it's your fault or when the thing you thought doesn't work, and then you can operate on that device, then I think that's really important as well. So this is the thing that really gets on my nerves in that we have all these groups right now pretending that they are progressive research groups, nice places to work. But the unwritten rule is that you have to work 90 hours a week, right, to do the synthesis or whatever, right? That's, that will come out in a few years. I don't have that in my group. I must admit, I wanted the molecules these big groups are making. It's like, I'm going to make the robots to do it, and I'll make the students make the robots. But if I just made the students work 90-hour weeks to make the robots to work 90-hour weeks, that wouldn't be good. So it's taking us some time over the last 10 years to get it right. In fact, you can't just do automation in 20 seconds. It's a long road. But we're making some natural products now with a computer. So I think that's a really important kind of point. So I think it's about removing the ambiguity in the literature, removing the manual labor, 
and also getting you to the cutting edge of science faster and removing the culture where the PI is saying, you need to do this number of reactions in my ward garden or you're not getting a PhD. It's really interesting. I think it's not just talking about, yeah, kind of what you want from the work, but also kind of creating that culture around automation and kind of allowing creative thinking of the researchers beyond just, you know, thinking of new mechanisms and things. So that's kind of what the automation perhaps provides is opportunity to create or think more critically and more creatively about the work they're doing. Yeah. And I think I didn't realize that actually I had a visceral reaction against that kind of culture because I like thinking creatively and I love doing science under my terms. I love the environment that was created for me. And I think one of the things I want to be able to do as a PI is to create that type of environment. It's quite hard because I worked in a really small group. I have no idea what it's like to work for me. <laughs> you have someone here who might have someone. So it's really interesting. It's like I want to create a culture, but I have no idea what it's like to work for me in that culture other than really pay attention to what people say. So I've had to kind of change my approach to running a group many times in my career because occasionally I would come across as being, a, you know, over-enthusiastic. When is over-enthusiasm systematic bullying? So there's all these different interpersonal skills you have to develop and these checks and balances. And the way I've done it is I do it in a totally transparent environment in front of people. That doesn't keep you on the straight and narrow forever, but it allows you to kind of have a supportive environment where you are ameliorating your own preferences, right? Because some people in your team are easier to work with than others. Some have got more trouble than others. Some of the projects not working, it's really hard, it's really frustrating and all that stuff. Some people, for whatever reason, kind of have a run of bad luck. And so it's kind of managing all of that in the mixture. We've covered a lot of ground in that question, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. And I guess kind of talking more beyond just kind of the research you're doing, what do you like to do when you're not, you know, doing research? What's your kind of downtime that you like to have? I went on a roller coaster on that VR thing. <laughs> I run every day, five miles. It's my only break, really. And I do a bit of cycling and hiking in the good old days. I love traveling. So as part of the job, I really enjoy traveling. But actually what I do a lot of is I do a lot of philosophy, a lot of thinking about why the universe works. It just so happens that my, the things align. My hobby passion, which is understanding how, why we're here, why does the universe work? My computational passion, I do in the, in the lab and what I do in chemistry. And also, I actually do have an electronics workshop at home where I just build stuff, random stuff, right? A lot of the ideas I've done in the past, I've actually prototyped in my workshop. So I remember the Twitter robot paper I published a few years ago. I basically checked it all worked beforehand. And then when I said to my group, yeah, we're going to make this robot. We have two robots talking on Twitter. Here's how we're going to plug it in and connect it to the Ethernet. And my computer scientist was being a bit of a smart ass and all oh, that ain't going to work. And I was like, you can't code that on that format. And I said, yeah, I did. I did the weekend. Here's the board. Here's the code. <laughs> and he went, oh, okay, all right, fine. And then what he did, which was exactly the right thing to do, is he deleted my code. And so the fact I showed him that it worked was enough. He then went and did his own thing with the team and they made the Twitter robot. So I kind of mix it all together. I love to think about the problems. I like the downtime I get in between. So I do try and find downtime. I'm not just working, but I guess I'm just absorbed in the problem. And I won't apologize for that, but that doesn't mean I work 24 seven. 
I like to learn new things. So what I typically do in a hobby is I try and pick things I find interesting that are also going to help me do stuff in my day job. So that's why I have a kind of very wide interest. I like to pick things up. I think that's how it works. But at the moment, with a lockdown, it's all a bit, really a bit annoying because the days just blend together, don't they? I try and have a beginning to the day and an end to the day. And then I'm with my family. Then I work a bit more and then I'll read a bit. And then I might code. My group can know when I'm encoding because I'm just super tired because I've stayed up till 4 a.m. So I try to avoid coding last thing unless it's on a Friday and then I'll just go all the way through. It's a great example or I guess a proof of that saying that's very commonly used that you want to find such a passion in your field that you never work even a single day because if you're doing something which you really like, you're not really working. So there is that blurred boundary between working and actually having hobby because it just becomes your hobby, which is great. So I guess you touched a bit on traveling as a big thing right now. Everyone misses miss traveling. And we were wondering as a random question from countries that you visited, what is your favorite cuisine? Oh, favorite cuisine. Well, I do love Japanese food pretty much more than anything. I really love sushi. But actually, I do like eating steak in America, which is kind of weird. How do you have your steak? What's your preferred? Medium rare, filet mignon. But actually, since the lockdown, I've been buying cuts of meat at Waitrose and then cooking it how I like. I've been liking to be working how to cook that better. But in terms of cuisine, I did like China to start with. Well, I like it at China full stop. But the cuisine then, I think I got just overwhelmed because actually the cuisine in China, I couldn't experience on my own. I was always taken to a banquet. And the banquet would comprise of have this dinner, get drunk, talk to these top professors. And I'd be like, no. <laughs> I don't want to get drunk. Not today, please. Just no drinking today. And so China's brilliant, but the kind of social science culture is brutal. You know, utterly brutal. You can just go from one dinner to the next dinner to the next dinner. They won't accept you not drinking. You know, I've tried being teetotal. That I tried that with a big professor, but that really caused offense. I really like eating food, obviously, in Italy and also in France. But I think when I was in Slovakia, believe it or not, there's some really interesting cake in Slovakia. So, yeah, I, I mean, I eat anything, right? So as long as I can find a place to drink coffee and relax, then I'm okay. I think what I found quite nice about, you know, our group, obviously pre-lockdown, is, you know, having so many people from different cultures in the group, having, you know, people bring things into the conference room on a Monday morning and, you know, getting to try different yeah, cuisine is quite nice. Yeah, obviously at the moment it's a lot more difficult, but I think post-lockdown having the opportunity to travel will be, everyone's going to try and get away. I think everyone will be on a plane. <laughs> yeah, it's going to get wild. <laughs> Lee, you talked about it briefly about what you see about managing a team. Kind of obviously our team's very large in terms of size somewhat. Can you maybe talk about a few key kind of ways you've kind of developed in managing such a large team? What advice would you give to someone you know, starting a big team in chemistry? Well, I think the same goes for a big team or a small team. One of the best things I ever did, because I'm a real control freak. I mean, actually, probably, Henry, you can contradict me. I'm not, I don't think you've noticed that I'm a control freak. No, I wouldn't say so. I think you like to manage things. I think that's totally understandable. Having understanding what you've done. So what I did the first day one when I built my group is I bought a server, plugged the server into the wall, called it Scappa, Scappa 1, had a 20 megabyte disk in. Now the scappers have 80 terabytes. And I said to my group, my first group member, he had one computer. I said, you are not storing any data on that computer. It goes on this server. 
I'm going to make a file called group. Your name's going to be in it and your date is going to remain on that server forever. And he was like, what? And I said, yeah, that's what you're going to do. And I coded the lab book and I kind of learned from my PhD. My PhD supervisor taught me how to code the lab books, name everything. I used that. It was a good technique. I developed my own coding strategy. So what I would like to do is set up your own tradition that's going to be scalable, if you can, a scalable, transparent. And now to this day, when people say, oh, Lee, you've got to adhere to open data standards, I just say, why don't you ask me about what my data standard is? And they go, what? So well, come to my server. Here's my first ever PhD student's folder. Here is this Excel sheet with all these pH titrations. Shall we go to my third PhD student? Here's the folder. Here's the data. And not only do I have the data there, it's all stored in such a way that it's time-stamped. And so if anyone ever goes back and tries to doctor their data, they can't do that. I will notice. In fact, I've called people, well, one person in the history of my group doctoring their data. And I found it because of that process. So I think the first kind of tip for running a group is just get your data management right. The second tip, again, when the group is big or small, is try to be as transparent and honest as you can all the time. Now, I'm very honest and very autistic and find it very hard to lie to people because I just tell them what I think. That's good and bad. It's good because your students and your postdocs and your co-workers know where they are. It's bad if somebody is suffering from low confidence and you're having a bad day and you're not able to correctly say, no, you're in the right direction, but I'm going to try and push you a bit, but don't worry. And one of the things I've had to learn to do is to communicate with people at lots of different levels. And I remember one person saying, to me once when I asked them, you know, they had a big team. I said, why have you got a big team? And they said to me, 70% of them are crap. I've got a big team because uh, only 30% produce anything. And I walked away from a conversation totally depressed and horrified. And so since then, I made sure that I give everybody in my team equal amount of time. And what I do when someone is crap, I'm normally the most crap or we failing to do something as I go, okay, we're going to try every project I give every student is basically a Nobel Prize winning project. We haven't won any Nobel Prizes yet. Does that mean they're crap? No, of course not. It means my ambition, their ambition is a bit high. So what you do is you fail to safety. You set up to do something really important and really, you think it's really interesting and then you fail to do it. Go, oh, what did we learn? And what do we learn? And you need to fail together. So when you're running a big team, should you learn to fail together and say, oh, I remember going to one of my students say, you can't do that, you can't do that, can't do that. I said, what can you do? I was like, and they were like, what? And I said, oh, you can make this molecule. You're so good at making this molecule. It's a really complicated cluster that I'm going to get you to compete with a robot. And I invented this paper called Robots v. Humans. It's one of the most cited papers in recent years I've published in Agamanda. And the student from that was a conversation like, you can't do that, can't do that, can't do that. What can you do? Oh, you could just be, you can have an argument with the robot. And that might sound really bad, but it wasn't. The student was, uh, we were struggling, right? Because he was in a cul-de-sac of chemistry. So what I try to do is have this open discussion, but really be sensitive to what their needs are and fail together. If you fail together, then I think, you know, if the boss is failing with you and the purpose of the PhD is about critical thinking. The second purpose is to do a bit of work because it's good to get results. And then with that work, if you can then publish it so people then society benefits, then you then have what I call this virtuous train. Because I get people to think critically, I train them, they then get results, uh, which are super interesting. We then publish that, 
hopefully I can then use that as a basis to kind of show the world that we deserve the money and that we're not going to waste the money that we get entrusted to us. That's the virtual circle that I try and get in the group. And that is an important thing. The biggest tip, the biggest thing is when there's a disagreement, you try to have the disagreement openly with people around. And when I'm wrong, and I frequently am wrong, and we can tell you, you basically go, yeah, all right, that wasn't the right thing to do. We will change it as a result of feedback. If I can change as a result of feedback, then you can. And I think having no hierarchy that protects people from question is really important because it gets people used to, you need to do it the cutting edge of science. Cutting edge of science is stressful. It can make you feel stupid. It can make you feel like you've got an imposter syndrome and all these things. But don't worry, we're all in it together. And then what you do is you just, this is rubbish, we change the project. Academics are very bad sometimes at giving up. Yeah, completely agree, especially just with being transparent and having a supportive supervisor definitely helps. So just to finish off with a philosophical question, if someone gave you just five minutes and asked you to tell your thoughts on the meaning of life, what would be your answer? The meaning of life? Yep. <laughs> sure. I mean, the meaning of life, I know what meaning of my life is. My life is to kind of make a dent in the universe the universe will remember. What I'm going to try and do is create a technology that will create artificial life. So I can basically throw artificial life at other planets in the cosmos and make other planets come to life that would otherwise have been dead forever. I want to be a cosmological panspermia person, if you like. You asked about the meaning. So what I think the meaning is, the meaning is for the universe, we don't know what the meaning for life is yet. The meaning is really what we make it. So, you know, there are three meanings of life. There is the kind of spiritual meaning of life. And from a cultural point of view, the meaning that is life is what we make by interacting with each other, right? On our planet, doing our stuff. Very subjective, I think. Yeah, yeah. The second meaning of life is like the universe basically seems to be expanding. There's stuff happening. We've got a finite amount of time left. So what we want to do is basically make an impact in the universe and make sure we can find, if there are other life in the universe... What else might we do to sustain humanity beyond Earth? And then the third meaning of life is really just to maybe understand what started it. Or why is there stuff to experience at all? What is it? And I'm a chemist, and I bet it's got something to do with chemistry and philosophy. <laughs> I think that would be really, yeah, really cool if you can even answer that just even slightly in you know, the next five, ten years. I think that would be brilliant. I mean, certainly Nobel Prize winning, potentially. Well, even better, if I can encourage people like you and other people in the team to go and ask that question. I think it's a baton, right? One of the things I never really understood when people say, look at what you've done. Are you proud of it? And I sure I am. I'm proud of my team. But I can never remember what I've done before. I, mean, I can only tell you where I'm going. And at some point, I won't be going anywhere because I'll be dead. So, <laughs> you know, I think that's, and that's, I think, the way I want to do science, right? I'll be planning to do the next thing. Of course, I want the computer to be an expert for technology. I want to be able to discover aliens elsewhere using assembly theory. And I want to see if we can make chemical computers outsmart quantum ones, because it would be fun to do so. But more importantly, I want to help chemists regain their right to ask open questions and not be the slave to curing cancer or cleaning up the environment. I think that chemists deserve a right to be thinkers too. So you guys can help me and your listeners can help me do that by just having a thought, thinking, what do I want to do that hasn't got any application? And then I will be very happy if you manage to do that occasionally. 
I think that's a that's a really, really good place to finish up. So I think we've had a really insightful discussion about lots of different things. If someone wants to reach out to you, kind of what's the best way? We talked about Twitter. How would somebody get in touch with you? I think the best thing is to email me. My email is on the web. Easy to contact me that way. I think Twitter's fine. Email is also better. Thank you very much for coming. We really enjoyed the conversation. It was very interesting. Thanks everyone for listening. If you want to check us out on Twitter at Ken Combos Pod. And yeah, have a great day. See you. See ya.